This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Jenny, and I'm not an expert in economic theory. I'm Brian Alexander. Are you an expert on economic theory? I'm an amateur. Uh, I took some economics in school. I, I don't think this is super. And, I mean, it's not really a book about economics. It's it's about Marxist theory of value and stuff like that. So there's some stuff that is related to economics in there, but I'm not sure that's. Uh, it, you know what it reminded me of a lot more than Marx is Heinlein. Did you guys get a Heinlein vibe out of it? Hmm. No. How about guys lecturing for chapters, oh. <laughs> chapters yeah. and chapters well, I know about I, how things are? I, I've done a lot of research into Marxism. I published on it, and I taught classes on it. And there's you know, definitely a Capital Volume 1 huge vibe off of this. And, oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. That's the basis for the book. Yeah, but lectures, yeah, it's kind of like um, the Dune book, uh, God Emperor Dune. Oh my! You know, it's like the first half of this book is 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 talk. Uh, it, it, almost the whole thing. I mean, there's no almost no action at all, right? Oh, because it's so distance from it. Yeah, but then the end makes up for it. It kaboom! I think this is a pretty terrible novel, oh. but I think it's a very interesting book. Mm. Very interesting book. I, I can sort of see why it's sort of not well known. Uh, it's it's it doesn't have like. You know, if you're going to compare it to a Heinlein novel, it'd be sort of like the Moon is a Harsh Mistress or something. But that that thing is, it has tons of lectures and but also this one action. Cool. But it has it, it, that at least has the revolution is on the screen. You know, it's yeah. it's it's not we're not distanced, we're distanced by it twice here. First, there's the the narrator who is you know part of the action, but she's writing it in her journal, so. Right. That's distancing, and then there's the 700 years or whatever <laughs> in the future where they're looking back at what what was going on then, right. and make footnotes. Right, and that distances us again. And it's kind of written with the assumption that the reader knows what's happened 700 years into the future. I mean, that that's no, I don't think we named this book yet. <laughs> the Iron Heel yes, by Jack London, a 1907 Heel. novel. Sorry, <laughs> we're, we're, we're already into it, but yeah, continue, Jenny, I'm sorry. Well, I just mean, you know, it's from that perspective, 700 years later, and, yeah. you know, it's kind of, it, it's it's told to people in that era, right? That's the audience, I guess, yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And and they, they have to have a bunch of things explained to them. Now, what's interesting is because the book's so old for us, I mean, it's, it's more than 100 years old for us, some of the things that I think are being explained there uh you know we we almost need them to have be explained i didn't really find that i needed any particular one being explained but also the fact that the audience back then you, you know 1908 would would have been reading this book they would have said well yeah that's really obvious why are you telling me that right you know that people do prize fighting and stuff like that like, but grub means food right or grub yeah. means food <laughs> the you know, my dad used to call food grub, so I'm familiar with the phrase. But I think I think that the those footnotes are there to say, look how quaint our culture is now at the time that London was writing it, 
um, and to and to also show that perspective of of distance in time. Now, yeah. uh, I haven't read uh, this, When the Sleeper Awakes, but apparently that's the book that this is most closely like um, by H.G. Wells, uh-huh. uh, you know, as a predecessor. Either of you guys read that? Long time. No, ago. I haven't. Mm-mm. And uh, what do you, a long what do you recall ago. about that? Uh, yeah, similar time distancing gesture. And also, Lon- okay. London has a shout out to Wells. Um, yeah, it's twice. True. The um, um, Avis mentions Wells, and then um, the uh, the editor of the book, the real author, if you want, um, explains that Wells wrote famous stuff. And that they've a couple pieces of them have survived, and of course they're not the ones that we know. <laughs> right, it's like <laughs> you know they're not the fiction in the in the right. It's the it's some sort of uh, his more social yeah stuff. Did you ever read that uh, alternate history about Philip K. Dick uh, by Michael Bishop, where uh, Philip K. Dick is a little known mainstream writer? Huh. And uh, nope. he has all these science fiction novels that are uh, samizdat. They're 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 circulated underground. Huh. Yeah, it's really funny. It's a, it's hmm. a this what you said reminded me of that. Well, this is very much a. I think it is kind of an underground book in the sense that, well, actually the word underground shows up in it. Um, uh-huh. There's an underground society, and that I, I was telling you before the podcast started that I found a connection between this book, uh, The Iron Heel, and um, the. Buck Rogers, which is, you know, for the mainstream, uh, what people used to say was science fiction. Oh, you mean that Buck Rogers stuff, you know? Right. And I guess Buck Rogers was most popular as a serialized uh, comic strip before it became um, uh, movies or serials, you know, video serials. And then uh, there was a TV show. But the original story, uh, which came out in 1928, that had uh, a guy named Rogers not mentioned Buck, but it's the same guy, um, was called Armageddon 2419. Yeah. And it was uh, set in a future in which people, uh, the, the main character, Buck Rogers, has survived World War I. Um, he's in his late 20s, and he somehow got himself frozen in a mine. And he wakes up 500 years later in the future, and the world's changed, and he's introduced to that society and that's the story. Um, and what's interesting about that book is that it completely, I think it's inspired by this book, the iron heel, but it completely drops the socialist stuff and instead exchanges that for the yellow peril with, uh, the, you know, the Han Chinese invading North America and having crushed, uh, American, Entrepreneurial spirit um, and driven all Americans underground. Now that that's one of the connections is everybody's living underground. All the good heroes in our story of the Iron Heel are living, you know, in literally underground uh, or or uh, figuratively underground, uh, hiding their identities um, while the oligarchs live in their what are they called? What are those cities called? They're called oh uh, yeah the. Oh, I can't remember. Pleasure domes, or <laughs> I think one of them is called um, Asgard. Asgard, right? Mm-hmm. And artists. Yeah, and I think I think they said there was like Soul was one of them as well, which was interesting. So it's like a worldwide uh, um, 
conspiracy. So that was one of uh, you say, well, Jesse, that's kind of a tenuous connection just because people are living underground. Well, also check out the date. Uh, 2419 is the name of that that uh, novella. Oh. The and of course, our story is set in the year 419 BOM, which is uh, Brother Brotherhood of Man. of Man, right? Um, so it you know, combine that with the cryonics thing, which is also a London uh, idea. Not, I mean, he's not the only one who thought of it, but he's one of the first in science fiction to think of it. Is um, he wrote a story called? Uh, we had actually did a podcast on it called uh, called A Thousand Deaths, in which the main character, who also yeah. lives in San Francisco, is frozen. Um, it's, it's that one's sort of a spin-off instead of uh, of a, a Wells novel. It's a spin-off of uh, a different Wells novel. Um, sort of an Island of Dr. Moreau thing. Yeah. Yeah, and can we talk about some of the ideas that he um, kind of predicts in this novel? I started keeping a list. Oh, what um, you talking about? Because it's not real techy. Are you talking like yeah, so far? Right, not technical stuff, but um, war, economy. Um, sure. He yeah. talks about going to war with Germany, and this is, of course, written in 1907. Yeah. He talks about Honolulu and um, a surprise three American, there. Yeah, three American cruisers getting sunk by On December 4th. Right. And that leading us into war. Now, of course, it was the Germans in the book that did that. But, uh, yeah, wow, that really happened. Um, Hearst being defeated. I had to go back and look at the Newsies revolts, which actually happened before this book was published. Um, The idea that war would take an economy out of a depression. I mean, that's not really a new idea, but that definitely happened. Um, And that we would use that as a solution for our national surpluses. And mm-hmm. then the idea of national surplus spilling over into international trade until the world gets saturated. Um, all these things he was talking about, and they happened after this book. So I thought that was just kind of fascinating. Yeah, like he's, he, he's a very far ahead thinker, you know? Yeah, he really had some insights, I think. Right. In fact, there's a, uh, I found a letter a Trotsky wrote uh, to the daughter of of uh, Jack London after Jack London died. Uh, Apparently he wrote a eulogy as well. Um, London was like a, a, like a very hardcore socialist, Mm -hmm. um, you know, very actively involved. Apparently they called him the boy socialist when he was young. Yep. And um, he had good reason. I mean, we kind of forget if we're not looking at that time period, he had good reason for being very active in this, uh, you know, this movement. Oh, absolutely. You know, I went back and looked at events that had happened 1905, 1906, 1907. Mm-hmm. And those years are full of um, major disasters, both um, natural, lots of earthquakes and tsunamis, yeah. but also a lot of things where um, like work conditions were really bad. And so there were coal mine explosions in our con- in the United States in um, yeah. South America, mine disasters, um, and then all of the revolutions that were happening. Like, it was a really chaotic time, and a lot of things were kind of Jackson's getting... Jackson's arm, right? He gets a whole chapter. Yeah. I mean, that, that I, think, uh, I think that's one of the enduring images for, for the main character, but it's also, I mean, Jack London saw what what the capitalism, unrestrained 
you know, with 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 an oligarchy that doesn't, you know, that distances itself from from. I mean, this is a cool thing that I think uh, Americans are always talking about race. They don't talk about class, and that mm. uh, this book is about class. It's absolutely. There, I don't think I don't think race is mentioned once. It's all about class. Yeah, the, there's a um, there, it's it's. Well, London is kind of problematic on race. I mean, he's got a lot of racist stories, either openly or implicitly, you know. Um, and, and I was nervous about that rereading this. And, you know, you get a couple of references. There's this bit about uh, black people being less habitually happy than they are. Mm. Um, and then there's this, when they go to Chicago, um, there's a mulatto woman on the train. Um, but it's it's all... You know, fairly neutral. We're not into Lovecraft territory. No, I mean it. It is so. I mean, I've se- I've read a lot more. Uh, he's he's a very interesting figure because he's not he's not racist like Lovecraft or Robert E. Howard or anything like that. He's he's he is aware of of the theories of race, and he's you know he's not bought into them a hundred percent, but he does. It does factor into his into his fiction a little bit. I mean, there's a there's a, a couple of stories where you know it is explicitly about you know the character being a racist character, and then uh-huh. uh, later on he, he you know th- these two g- shipwrecked guys are. Uh, there's one story in which uh, two guys get shipwrecked, and one is black and the other is white, and they become like almost like lovers. Um, and oh. that you know the the racism is is almost defeated in this story, uh, but yeah, he's not he's not he is aware of race and it sort of factors into his writing. You know, in you know, if you look at even the dog stories, you know, they are <laughs> that is basically his view of race is you know dog breeding. Um, human breeding. I mean, that that was sort of at the time. But this book is not. This is all about class consciousness and and yeah. being aware of of the oligarchy, the the uh, middle class that's being uh, so many quotes on the middle class being ground ground out between the 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 one percenters, as I guess we would call them now, yeah. or the oligarchy and the and the the people of the abyss, which also is a Wellsian phrase, right? That's what he called the people who were at the absolute bottom of the yeah. English. Right. I think that's why Wells even got into the book because that borrowing of that phrase. Well, he, I, I think it's pretty obvious. He read a lot of Wells. Uh, he, he wrote, he wrote another, he wrote uh, a thousand deaths, which I, I think is, you know, his take on the Island of Dr. Moreau. Also his first published for money story, but also he wrote a, uh, another one that's, a little less technology, but um, it's a—it's actually the Invisible Man. Uh, his take on the Invisible Man, except instead of one guy, it's two guys, and they're competing. Shadow uh, in the flesh. Yeah, and it—that's yeah. kind of a weird story, but it it's is. interesting because they're both bastards. Yeah, and they—they—they they, they solve the invisibility problem in two different ways. But they're also—they're both real overachievers. You know, yes. it's a London thing, and they're both really—they're manly. You know, they're. Um, Absolutely. No, the one note about race surprised me, and, and you know I hate arguing for what a book misses, but the one thing the oligarchy doesn't do is it doesn't use race to divide people. And that's true. 
Jenny is quite right to draw attention to the current events because one of the things that's happening in 1905 and 1906 is, is uh, managers using race to divide unions. They do this in the coal fields. They definitely did it on the West Coast where London was living. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that, that's still playing in today, right? Oh, that's, yeah. The immigration reform is, do you want your fruit to be picked or not? Right. Yeah, in fact, in California, in one of those years, I don't think I wrote that one down, um, they had done some legislation that segregated Japanese children into different mm-hmm. classrooms. Mm-hmm. So that was happening in the very state that this is set in, too. So Yeah, he's Oof. kind of... If he'd lived longer, I wonder if he would have, if he would have you know, matured a bit on, on the score. Um, the, you know, I should also point out, you know, as a Canadian, we have... Uh, I, I'm My family has been involved in Canadian politics for many huh. decades huh. and not, you know, not directly, you know, getting votes or anything, uh, you know, no, not standing for office, but behind the scenes. Um, and the phrase that sticks in my mind uh, with regard to that is the cooperative Commonwealth. That, that was the name of a party that is still around in, they've changed the name, but a, a Canadian party that's still around that, you know, you really don't have in the States, which is the Socialist Party. It's the party that brought us health care. I mean, it, they didn't do it directly. They did it by proposing it and then having the uh, the left-leaning party in Canada called the Liberals yep. Um, yep. adopt it, saying, that's a great policy idea. We'll take that. Well, that's, so they, that's kind of what happened in the U.S. to a degree. I mean, we had a socialist party, and London mentions it. In fact, there's footnotes giving numbers of their votes and everything. Um, yeah, I, it, there was definitely a trend there. The, but the Democratic Party things, under FDR yeah. then put a lot of that into play. I, there, was, there was something, you know, a number of factors, I think, that has pushed the U.S. away from from it, other than what you know, what you've got in Medicaid and Medicare and such, but I was later. Yeah, well, it's always been equating it with our enemy. You know, that's been a pretty effective tool. <laughs> you know that uh, people always mangle this in different ways, but you know that John Steinbeck quote people usually cite: "Americans will never be socialists because the average American thinks of himself as a temporarily embarrassed millionaire." Right. <laughs> The original quote is a little less pithy than that, but it works. No. Well, uh, this is a book of quotes, right? I mean, he he's quoting yeah. all sorts of people, and I mean, the one that I that I, I think the one that I tweeted that was shocking in the coming attributed as to who it was I was telling you is is the one by Lincoln um, <laughs> that's attributed to Lincoln. Anyways, there's some d- debate on the internet whether uh, this is you know, something Lincoln wrote, if it's just a... Where is it in the book? Uh, it's pretty early on. Okay. I think it's in one of those conversations where uh, <laughs> he's sitting around some rich guy's living room arguing with a bunch of bishops. <laughs> I love that. And so the quote, I'll, I, I had to reduce it slightly, uh-huh. um, and it is sort of a reduction anyways, but it's 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 fascinating because it even if it isn't Lincoln saying it, the fact that it was said in 1907, although it was said earlier than that, or written any, anyways down earlier than that, because of that fact, it's it's fascinating. And what where did I what did I do with it? It's from two days ago. Let's see. 
Uh, aha, here it is. Uh, oh, no, I've lost it. Poop. Ah, here it is. Corporations have been enthroned. An era of corruption in high places will follow, and the money, power, the money and power will endeavor to prolong its reign by working on the prejudices of the people until wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. And attributed to Abraham Lincoln in a letter. Hmm. Now, uh, he, I would say, you know, the one that comes after that is is basically the same warning, although not specifically how it would be done. Lincoln, if this is actually Lincoln, it's not explained how it would be done. It's just it's it's happening, right? Uh, it it'd be the famous exit speech by. Uh, Eisenhower, right? The military, beware the military industrial Sorry? Yeah, the military industrial Um, complex. Yeah. Yeah, beware the military industrial complex. And there are others, I mean, there, there's lots of stories of presidents giving other, you know, future presidents advice. These are the things you gotta watch out for. You can't trust the, this bureaucracy. They're, you know, they're in it for the money. Whatever. They're in it for the power. One of the quotes that sent me looking, because I knew I recognized it, um, mm-hmm. I think is probably comes from Gene Debs, our most known socialist, probably from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in, just kind of stuck in a footnote, and it wasn't really cited. Um, but it was the one about the working men. Why should the working men of one country fight with the working men of another country for the benefit of their capitalist workers? Yeah, but there's a whole war that's averted in this novel based on strike. you know a war between Germany and 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 the United States being stopped by a general strike. Yeah, exactly. But then those, those that, words seemed really familiar to me, and I couldn't find it verbatim. But you know, it's very along the lines of the things that he would say. Mm-hmm. You know, London did work with Eugene Debs. Uh, he, he was he was super act. I mean, he was he was lecturing even after he's. You know, rich, wealthy guy after publishing The Call of the Wild and the follow-up to that. He's still traveling the country and, you know, singing the the praises of the idea of socialism via unions and such. So it's, he, he you know, this book was not popular even at the time, but uh, I'm not sure if that's because of the way it's written or if it's just because things that sort of headed off in a different direction or as it happens in the book is it suppressed right you know or mm-hmm. the, the publish uh, what was they had a what do they call the the black black, black hundreds, hundreds or something the black hundreds right where they just go and torch <laughs> torch the manufacturer or the the publisher it's um let me ask you a question actually i'm not mm-hmm. sure that I mean, I, I know that Jack London himself was a socialist, and he was very active, but I'm not sure the book makes a good argument for it being successful. <laughs> it, it's basically, I think, it's it's he's he he read Das Kapital, right? He read Marx, and he said, "Okay, how would this play out?" It's basically uh, Marxian fan fiction, and he he's thinking. Not that it's it's going to be easy, but it's going to be hard, and it's it, it's it's not a utopian novel; it's a dystopian novel. And I think I actually found another quote um, from from London. 
explaining why he wrote it this way. But, Brian, you were going to say something? Well, I was going to say, that's a terrific question, Jenny. I mean, there's this, God, this sad, sad scene. It's um, chapter 14, the beginning of the end, when um, this is when the unions uh, defect um, and uh, undo the revolution, basically. And um, our hero has this sad, sad prophecy that he turns to the narrator and says, Social, revolu- social evolution is exasperatingly slow, isn't it, sweetheart? And my arms were about him, and his head was on my breast. Sing me to sleep. I have had a visioning, and I wish to forget. And That's so sad. <laughs> I know. And, and so I, 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 I don't know, Jay. I, I wonder, cause for me, the tone of this book is so overwhelmingly sad. I mean, it gets worse and worse and darker and more horrible. And then, you know, it ends cut off. And, and it's worse after the cut off because you know from the introduction that their hopeful revolution fails and the second one fails and the third one fails and it's hundreds of years. Man, I, I, I don't know. I mean, Marx in his lifetime, I mean, he had high hopes for 1848. He really thought that that would happen and... You know, you get decades after that of his writing where he keeps turning to revolutions, and when they fail, he's, he's furious. I mean, he has this hilarious, bitter essay about the French Revolution turning to Napoleon III. And he's oh, yeah. just going crazy. Why? Why did you guys do this? What's wrong with you? And then you get, finally, you know, Das Kapital, the three volumes, uh, you know, is this big Darwinian model. All right, maybe maybe I'm wrong. This isn't going to happen in my lifetime, but it's going to take... It's evolution. It's going to take decades. But centuries? I I can't imagine coming off of this... Well, I don't know. I mean, this book seems more like a warning about bad guys and less a call for the good guys. Yeah. Actually, that's what the quote I've got. Uh, 1910 inscription in a copy of Iron Heels given to one of London's friends. It reads, Dear Felix, society is approaching the division of the ways. Either it must take the way that leads to socialism or the way that leads to oligarchy. I believe society will take the way to socialism. Nevertheless, I've written this as a, the mm. oligarchical way as a warning. Mm. And it's funny, you know, I guess you could argue that we live in an oligarchy, but I think instead what happened is we became... Um, a world of government regulation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah. after this came antitrust legislations and, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that made a significant change and additional changes in labor law, child labor law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of wondered, like, is that the only thing holding us back from that conflict between oligarchy and revolution? Is it these kind of calm changes toward regulation and then what political party would that make me? <laughs> well, you know, I think a Maoist. I mean, that, that's the, <laughs> I mean, that's the left-wing argument against you know, a lot of the 20th century, basically, was that you know, the U.S. was in this revolutionary moment up to 1914, 1917, and then um, basically the left-wing ideas got co-opted by um, the progressives, who then took it into the mainstream, and then by FDR and the New Deal, Mm-hmm. And then, if you want, in the 1960s with uh, the Great Society, where you know that's where you get Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, and arguably, it's only now that we're returning to 1907. You know, now Absolutely. that you know, the, in the 1990s, when I mentioned the financials, I mean, one of the amazing things is the 1990s was this great gutting of regulations. Um, yeah. You know, Clinton oversaw quite happily the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and then uh, Larry Summers 
who may be our next chairman of the Fed, uh, was instrumental in making sure that derivatives, uh, the ones that blew up the economy in 2008, that they weren't regulated and they're still not. Um, you know, now we're looking at uh, we have a greater divide than ever um, in our in our class structure and the possible regression of all these New Deal and Great Society issues. Um, no, I, I that's why I mean, this makes me sad. But do you have you guys seen this this about the bad guys? Have you guys seen the um, Chilean cover of Iron Heel, the Allende no. cover? I heard about it. It's pretty amazing. What, what's it look like? It's well, the one I've got has uh, the top half of it is a boot. It's a cowboy boot, and the bottom is a placard for Allende, the Viva Allende. Huh. And so, um, um, my back. This is from the Journeyman Press. This is a British paperback, and the back says, "Is a quote uh, from uh, what's his name, Wilmarth, the big villain." This, then, is our answer. We will grind your revolutionists down under a heel, and we will walk upon your faces. Well, then the, then the editor says, prophetic words, these were to be, written over 20 years before the rise of fascism in Europe. In 1974, with the death of democracy in Chile, their meanings become all too clear. There's, like, mm-hmm. no plot summary. That's the entire jacket yeah. copy. Uh, this, is a, this is a novel read by revolutionaries, you know? Yeah. It's not a novel read by... Uh, the science fiction mainstream, it's, it's almost completely forgotten out of, out of the field of science fiction. And it is because it's all about the social and there's almost like the tech is so minimal. Over the 700 years of span, the only thing that seems to have changed is they, they haven't digitized very much. Right. But if, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> Maybe they've digitized some. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's funny because you can see a lot of science fiction being written within the story, right? Because there's mm-hmm. all this stuff about um, this artistic society that comes out of the oligarchy and how art is so important and mm-hmm. invention and creativity and beauty is so important. So there's this aesthetic going on that we don't see in the book. We just hear about it. I think um, there's, one, there, there's one part where, the remember at the beginning there was a meeting of bishops or something or yeah. a bunch of priests and one of them is converted and he you know sells his chapel or whatever it is yeah. and he takes money and he, he starts serving the poor carrying uh, carrying coal and kindling on his back and yeah. feeding the poor with it and traveling about and he's he you know he is it's very interesting because you know Jack London's not a believer uh, in in religion but he does see the power that religion plays in the social movement oh, and in this it's it's pretty strong but the other two bishops they later show up as well, and they've grown fat. Yeah, and they have two alternate views on how the god of uh, the oligarchs works. And one of them says he's mostly air with a little bit of vertebra, and the other one says no, it's mostly vertebra with a little bit more air. But really, they're both. <laughs> <laughs> it's really like just a, a condemnation of. Of that way to go, you know. If you're not doing the feed the poor, um, condemn the rich man, Jesus, you're doing the uh, airy fairy, right? Um, heavenly spirit sort of stuff. Then you're you're doing it wrong, is what London's saying there. There's a there's an apocalyptic revolution paragraph when everything is falling apart around Chicago, and there's a the, there's this bit about um, um, revolution. Or, I'm sorry, but re- religious revivals saying these are the end times, and then um, 
um, nothing happens religiously, so they they basically get killed. It's <laughs> like so a kind of throwaway paragraph when things are racing ahead. And you, mm-hmm. you know, an interesting thing is that in 1906, no, mm-hmm. I, it was the beginning of the Azusa Street Revival, which was a huge start of the Pentecostal movement in the United States. So Uh even that concept, he's pulling everything from his surrounding events, I think. He's totally totally connected to what's going on. I mean, that the, the influence of the, of the earthquake in San Francisco, which which is, I think 1906 as well, is, is, it's still earth shattering in 700 years into the future. And hmm. we, we still know about it a, a little bit, but the, it's because it happened in, you know, a big city, San Francisco with a guy who was there to document it along with lots of other people. Right. Yeah. And it gave him one of his best economic examples in the book, right? That these people have increased business because of that disaster, but they're not seeing increased money because the money isn't going to them. It's going to the railroads and who owns the railroads, yeah. you know, you know, uh, another one of the oligarchs that gets a explicit shout out is Hearst, and and then what was interesting is that later history, right? What happens to Patty Hearst hmm. is kind of like a, one little part of this book, right? Where Patty Hearst is is the heir to the Hearst Empire, right? Yeah, and she's kidnapped by some revolutionaries, uh, the Symbionese Liberation Revol- Army. Yeah. Liberation Army, whatever that is, right? Yeah. Um, sort of lefty, uh, and they quote unquote brainwash her, right? Did you ever see that John Waters movie about radical filmmakers where they have, uh, they kidnap a uh, young heiress and torment her? And then Waters mm-hmm. has Patty Hearst, the actual woman, calling oh, her, really? telling her, don't let them brainwash you. <laughs> yes. It's a wonderful movie. It's called Cecil B. Demented. That's the movie. Uh, hmm. Very well, it, that's the thing is, is this in in our story, right? What happens is they this guy stumbles in on them, they they kidnap him and say you can't leave. Then they convert him, right. and he becomes an ardent uh, believer in the in the movement. Um, and you know the argue, the way the character our, our our heroine sees the hero is it's like bizarrely uh, yeah. charisma based on his muscles and based on his his, his bulletproof arguments. Right? Oh, it's, yeah. it's so... I think it's, uh, I think it's because he has a porn star name. <laughs> Everhard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean he's, he's just like this... Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those names that it was designed to show his his manliness. Well, there, um, a friend of mine was a Jack London scholar, and he and his he observed that for him, he really thinks this is a, a self an author insert that oh yeah you know this is this is the the one he wants to be the the natural aristocrat the ubermensch you know yeah yeah and and you know uh, the way I think London's a super smart guy, but he is not he is like a lot of very super smart guys. You know, he's more like um, Benjamin Franklin than he is like a traditional scholar. He's more hmm. you know, self-taught, um, very... He reads what he likes to read. He reads a lot, but, you know, his his reading of, like, of the philosophers, it's not exactly right. He's got... 
you know, the way he describes metaphysics, it's interesting, but it's not, it's not right. Like that's not exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the way he reads Marx is it, I think is pretty damn insightful. And it obviously it, it plays interestingly, but Marx is not right completely either. I mean, the, the whole basis for this novel is how the surplus theory of value works and how it would play out in the, you know, the economy. It basically, it, you know, economics is not a science. It's, it is a hist historical science. It's it, looking back and trying to explain what happened. Right. Rather than the predictive part of it is not very good. And so, when he says at the beginning he's got these characters, you know, okay, if you don't buy into this this definition, you don't see anything wrong with it, then you can't say anything later. Well, that's not how a real, you know, po real political philosophy can work. That that um yeah. You know, you don't have to and yet that's also the criticism he's levying against those guys is that they 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 can work out any uh, metaphysics they want and it's all consistent and they can disprove anyone else metaphysics to their own satisfaction so he he's he's kind of a weird combination of a of a guy who's really into the theory but i think the reason he's really into the theory is because of those experiences that he really did have uh -huh. you know growing up poor working like the devil and not making any money and seeing other people you know uh pulling in the big bucks by having the ability to in, legislate their own money, right? Legislate their the laws right into the, their bank account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the truth of that discussion that you're referring to in the book, when he's trying to use logic and no one can argue him with logic, mm -hmm. <laughs> but then the man finally stands up and says, we don't have to argue with you. When yeah. you try to come for us, we'll crush you down. <laughs> Yeah. Because we have the power and you don't. And in the end, that's all that really matters. And the book demonstrates that that's true. So he wins. <laughs> but he, he, he... Everhard wins in the end, right? Does he? Yeah, well, he, this, this social democratic uh, movement that he's going for is in place in 700 years, right? He doesn't win in his own lifetime. Okay. In fact, the, there's... After the Everhard manuscript is finished, there was a second revolution. Again, another failure. Fails, yeah. And apparently there's like four more that fail or, not, you know, don't completely, you know, work. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the French Revolution. It, you know, it's not really that successful. It was successful in getting rid of the king, but it wasn't successful in, in solving all the country's problems. Well, they got their king back in 1815. Um, the, uh, yeah, but then they got rid of them again eventually, right? Well, it's we a don't cycle. Have... I mean, it, it, yeah. uh, no, I. The British had had that, you know. It 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 these cycles of yeah, getting 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 out and getting back in. It's uh, it's what's very interesting is that this is a roadmap for other writers too. You know, the there's uh, the other one that I thought was fascinating was there's an article written by George Orwell in 1940. I, sorry, not an article, a review of the Iron Heel, hmm. written in 1940 by George Orwell. So eight years before he's he's writing uh, his masterwork, right, uh -huh. 1984, uh -huh. and he's talking about what's wrong with the book, and he says there's plenty wrong with it, but you know you can see his mind working and saying, okay, so here's where the oligarchs uh, screwed up. 
they didn't do this. They didn't reduce the language. They didn't uh, make continuous war the object of of control. They 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 weren't hard enough, right? They weren't smart enough. So he makes the enemy even harder and even smarter. But it could be that the 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 two books are set in the same universe. If you look at the the timeline, 1984 actually I think is mentioned in this book uh, at one point. I think the word the 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 age is actually mentioned, um, which you know is maybe just a coincidence in the same way that uh, 419 is a coincidence. It could be a coincidence. They're just numbers, but uh, he did read it and he did appreciate it. Um, and, you know, he has some criticism of, of uh, London's sort of technique and such, but he points out how smart London is for figuring out how fascist mindsets were. Yeah, I mean, really early. I mean, pre-World War One, Pre-World War One, Even, um, you know, pre-Russian Revolution, Trotsky's saying, yeah, wow, he really figured out how these things work. Well, there's this nice note from Orwell, I don't remember if it's in that review or elsewhere, where he says he really understood fascism in part because he had a little of the fascist inside yes. himself. Yeah, that's in that review, yeah. And I was thinking, I was trying to figure out, all right, how does this work in this book? And one of the things that occurred to me I don't know if you've seen this, Jenny, the, the idea that, how does it quote Because he, he has too much love for the strong and not enough love for the weak. It's, I think that's about how it is. And, and so, okay, you look at the book, and one of the things is, it's interesting. Ah, if Eric Rabkin were here, he'd be all over this point. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of um, unmanning going on. Mm. And you get Jackson who, you know, like Ahab, Moby Dick, is, is you know, amputated, right? You know, he's symbolically castrated. Um, and at the end, he manages to become a terrorist and, and then commit suicide, right? right? Um, but you also get these uh, lots of uh, father figures who um, are unmanned. You get the bishop. Um, mm-hmm. what's, what's that line? Um, uh, Everhart says, you know, he was designed to be crucified. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get um, Avis's father, who gets destroyed, ends up working yeah, as a as a street urchin. Yep. Um, you get uh, um, all kinds of uh, older figures who are revealed to be weak and pathetic. Uh, I love the chapter titles in this book. You, yeah. you, you just sit back and read the chapter titles and you say, "Wow, this guy loves drama, right? He loves the drama." And yeah. you can he is. He, I think you know calling him a fascist is is. It's uncharitable in the sense that, you know, he, he's way before all of this, and he was a super compassionate guy. Um, but on the other hand, he, he loved muscles. And he, loved, right. he loved the struggle. Right. And, you know, it's the, when you read The Call of the Wild, the power that that yeah. book has, it's not just being a dog story. Oh, sure. It is the story of a powerful beast that is unmanned. Right, right. Right. And then, builds up a and builds through a kind of um, series of mistakes on how to interact with others. So it it first he he is a a that dog is a sedated king not sedated king he's a, he's like a um, sated king right and he he's right. he's fooled by by uh, a guy who 
sells him, and then he's right. taken away, and he's fighting everybody, and then he has the shit kicked out of him by a, a dog breaker. Right. And then he hates all men, and then he finds a man to love, and then he eventually says, okay, I don't need to love men anymore. I can be what I was meant to be, which is a dominant primordial beast. Right. Well, this is uh, the, the sea wolf is like that with humans. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a wild, like, the book is, is incredibly macho. You know, you get the, the sea wolf's captain, who is this berserk, you know, uh, Nietzschean guy, and then the hero is is trying to catch up with him, and there's constant face-offs and struggles. And whenever I was telling Jenny this morning, it's like whenever I read London, it's like a shot of adrenaline to my heart. You know, I'm always excited. And um, I'll go back to Mark stuff for a second. I think there's one thing that's 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 interesting, and I was trying to figure out how. I mean, Mark's missed this, and um, and I was wondering what where London missed it. I think I found the spot. Um, so there's a surplus value idea that the capitalists will keep making surplus value, and then eventually um, it'll run out of room, and, and that will be the crisis. Um, Lenin actually has this, uh, one of the foundational texts of post-colonial theory is this book where he says, this is where colonialism comes from in the 20th century. And that shows up in Iron Heel, when he's talking to the guys, the machine breakers, you know, you can't sell any more in the U.S., okay, you'll, you'll shove your surplus value abroad. Um, and then there'll, there'll be a global crisis. You know, so why didn't this happen? And and I found one one reason. It's um, this offhand line in chapter thirteen, a general strike, when they when talking about Hearst, and then um, Hearst's financial strength lay wholly in the middle class. The trusts did not advertise. Mm-hmm. So I mean, one thing that happens: consumer culture happened. Yeah, and so advertising, consumerism—that's what you. That's how you be a patriot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when the towers get knocked down, go and buy, buy, buy. And that's a that's a bipartisan thing. Um, people love. It. Yeah, I mean, you get you get what's his name? Uh, Paul Krugman keeps saying this. You know, we have to increase consumer spending because we're demand, right? You, know, you want consumerism to happen, and um, I mean that's that's one. And when they can't way. afford to buy, then you give them credit. Well, this is all he sees. All London sees is the suffering proletariat, the uh, the underclass. Um, he doesn't see, you know, the American dream when it happens. He can't in the book. He can't see when people claw their way out and become, if you will, petty bourgeoisie, um, and then that they they don't apply to this. I mean, that's that's one of the great things that that Marx misses and and puts this off and. I mean, in our own time, I think that's one of the moments of, of, of great crisis because we have this global stuttering of consumer spending, and not just the U.S., but, but China and in Europe. And, you know, that's, that's terrifying to the global economic order. You know, what do you do next? Um, so that, that was one thing that was missing. Um, but I think getting fascism right is just chilling. i, I got to come back to that. I mean, it's just all the descriptions of this are... Uh, gothic, you know the the genocide of Chicago. This is, yeah, I mean the it's a reference to the Paris Commune, which was pretty awful, and mm-hmm. and I think there's a nice telling reference there because the Paris Commune, the tragedy of that is that the Prussian uh, army ordered the French to suppress it themselves, and it's just just you know agony, you know stirring the knife in the wound there. Um, so the Civil War aspect is definitely here, and what is what is. Uh, what does he say at the end of it? That there are no more people left in Chicago. They're all killed. Mm-hmm. They had to just import slave armies, you know, to to rebuild Chicago from scratch. Um, but you can get early on 
the way the way <laughs> the way the hero flirts with the heroine, right? The way he wins her over is that um, she's she's uh, challenging him, and and he says, you know, I, I you have money. Your father has money invested in these things. What has that got to do with it? I cried. Nothing much, except the gown you wear is stained with blood. Mm-hmm. The food yeah, you eat is a bloody stew. The blood of little children is dripping from your roof beams. And then, <laughs> well, this wins her over. You know, how, how do you woo somebody, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and you get that gothic language throughout. I mean, it's, it's, it feels like something written in the 30s, you know, like a smuggled-out text from Nazi Germany yeah. or fascist Italy or from Stalin's Soviet Union. Uh, it's a it's a different you know it's different than we it's different than it's radically different from all of them and you know it's also earlier than everything I I don't know it's it's a weird book because it is so important but it's it it doesn't feel like a novel as much as it does like a sort of a pseudo history of of what might happen in the... T- it, it, yeah, maybe it's more like a, one of those Wells works that I haven't read. Or Looking Backward. Yeah, or Looking Backward. There's another one, yeah. But this is the dystopian version. So instead of mm-hmm. showing how the future solves all these problems, great, yeah. you know, now it's how, how the near future is going to turn all to a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really liked the language, and especially when he was giving his speeches. I mean, he was really quite an orator. <laughs> and one of my favorite parts is near the end of the book, and mm-hmm. it's talking, kind of like what you were talking about, Brian, the fascism and the portrayal of fascism. One of the important elements of fascism is the ability to perpetuate it, mm-hmm. um, you know, to have a plan. And there's this part about kind of the education of the oligarchy that ongoing education about I have a little quote here Um, they as a class believe that they alone maintain civilization it was their belief that if ever they weakened the great beast would engulf them in everything of beauty and wonder and joy and good in its cavernous and slime dripping maw without (laughs) them anarchy would reign and humanity would drop backward into the primitive night out of which it had so painfully emerged that's a pretty powerful image (laughs) It's yeah. it's also it's that it's the same thing that drove colonialism in or sorry not what drove it but excused it right was the the white man's burden mm-hmm. is the, we are the vanguard of of civilization right his might <laughs> it's not yeah well, it's but, barbarism but, versus civilization and you know yeah it's terrible that these poor unfortunates have to suffer so what if we don't make them suffer they can't they will bring us down to their level sort of thing yeah and if you ignore the starving masses which they do pretty effectively (laughs) then they they aren't wrong right there's this art coming out they're creating beautiful things the people that are in those cities have a wonderful life of course they would want to keep it that's when you look you know you look back at the roman civilization you say look they've got They've got toilets. They've got they've got uh, hot baths. They've got newspapers for Christ's sake, right? They've got everything. Uh, yeah, well, it's all built on slavery, and we don't see all the slave notes, right? Right. right. We we oh yeah, there was wasn't there a slave rebellion that lasted the you know couple centuries, not centuries, couple decades? Oh yeah, and then, and then another one. Well, this comes up with steampunk today when people are all excited about steampunk. You're like, yeah, you know, you're trying to imitate the Victorian age. Whoa, what's wrong with that? You know? <laughs> Well, did you? It, but there's other echo today. You, you, you know this famous quote, Lloyd Blankfein, the uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, in 2009, so that he was doing God's work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I got a little 
iron heel, you know, buzz off of that. Um, oh, I was seeing Wall Street all over this novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just watched uh, the movie Margin Call. And, oh, great film. Yeah, I was I was very impressed by it. it was yeah. it's very um, it gets you into their mindset um, oh. and, and notice you know they're up in towers all day. Yep, right? they're up in these castles in the sky. Every day on the ground. Um, where it's you know well it, yeah it's terrible that a lot of people are going to be crushed by this but if we don't do it we're not going to be we're we're going to be even in a worse position mm-hmm. and at least at least you'll get your bonus. The um, <laughs> when the elite <laughs> arrives, uh, Jeremy Irons crew they, they they arrive by air right. Mm-hmm. It's a really, it's a really neat um, chamber drama. It's one of the best works of art to come out of the financial crash. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask it, you. It, oh, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say it reminds me of uh, you know the way that Facebook movie worked. Uh, what was that one called? The Social Network. Uh, yeah. It was kind of like that, except um, except more. Uh, they're turning what is essentially not dramatic into a drama there, right. whereas in Margin Call, at least. Uh, the you never know what they're talking about. They don't even know what they're talking about. Right. All they know is the effects that the choices they're making are going to have. And they they talk about how well we didn't really have a choice. They're also both so it uh, never feels like you have a choice. They're also both very oppositional films. Um, Margin Call is about villains, and uh, Social Network deeply hates Zuckerberg and the online world. I mean, it's a horror film in many ways. It's it's an incredible work of hate. I don't think most people see it that way. That's because they're not looking hard. Um, I mean, <laughs> because Sorkin has gone out in public and said that hackers are terrible people. Um, you know that if you if you watch the film closely, you know the Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails doing the soundtrack. It's not the happy dancing music, right? Uh, every <laughs> time Zuckerberg and his friends do well, the music gets dark. The lighting goes dark. It's just it's just horrifying every step of the way. Um, you know, the end, that final, that last image of, of the most powerful, you know, this rich Zuckerberg guy, and what does he get? He's sitting there clicking on refresh over and over again, lonely. And, I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a, I mean. But it's, you know, it's the same way. I think a lot of people, they'll watch Margin Call and they say, oh, nice car. Oh, yeah. And they say, oh, beautiful brownstone. Oh, I yeah. want those things, well, right? And they, the, the, the actor who was in um, the Oliver Stone movie, um, Wall Street, Michael Douglas, was it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He says that he always gets people to come exactly. to him and say, "You inspired me to go into Wall Street." Like, yeah, what? Exactly. Did you see the movie? <laughs> there's uh, there's one scene in Margin Call where the, there's the two uh, junior employees. They're standing in the elevator, and they're in between them is the the cleaning lady. Yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. one doesn't want to say the other. You know, doesn't want to be honest in front of in front of her. And she's just like staring ahead, and you're thinking, "What is she thinking?" And that's what you're, all you're thinking is, "What is she thinking?" Yeah. And of course, she has no no words. She she's just there for. She is the one person who is a real person that is going to be affected by this. Right. You know, she's probably going to be fired. The one everyone else is getting out with a, when they're getting fired, they get out with money, right? right. Everybody makes money, but she's the only real person in the movie. All right, so I had to. I, I want to run an idea past you guys about about Iron Heel and science fiction. And here's my idea. I, I thought this would be a very appealing work. That it would it would be more widely read than it was. And and here's why. I thought that on this side of the Atlantic, it would be widely read because it's a work of social science fiction, political science fiction. You know, this is this is like the um, 
not hard SF. You're not looking at what happens when you change it and you have a new invention and see how it works. You're looking at a social change. So it's like 1984. You know, it's like um, a lot of the social works of the 60s and 70s. Um, mm-hmm. And then I thought uh, in Britain, I thought it would be more popular because British SF is is far more to the left than American. You know, you you see this now with space opera, where you know British space opera tends to be socialist, and American space opera tends to be libertarian. Um, so I would have thought, wow, this would really inspire. And but it hasn't. It's it's been a minor book. So I'm wondering, why is that? What, what am I missing? One of, my, one of my favorite science fiction novels is one nobody's ever read hmm. except for me, I think, and it's out of print. The author's basically completely forgotten. Is uh, Mac Reynolds is the name of the author. Yeah, and he was sort of he was he came up out of the fifties pulps, and he wrote a lot of sort of regular stuff. But he also wrote a little bit about race and yeah. a little bit about culture. But he wrote this one book, and I think I, I, I'm remembering it right because it's pretty hard to get a hold of. I don't think I even have a copy anymore. But it's called Commune Two Thousand. I think it was what it was called, and or something like that, and. The whole premise of the book is that uh, we live in the future that everything is is surplus. There's so much surplus that jobs are scarce. But and instead of everybody being, you know, starving because of this lack of jobs, everybody is totally full of free time. And everybody wants a job, and they sort of have to compete by getting better and better, better education and, and by jockeying to try and get a job at a university or something where, because everything's automated, they live in this post-scarcity environment. And the the problem with this utopia is that this utopia is broken because people are unsatisfied in that they can't work. And not everybody is willing to just spend all their time doing leisure activities. They want to have some sort of work experience. This is like completely the opposite of what we have today, I think for most people, they it's not that they want more work, it's that they want decent work for a decent amount of time, and it's not jobs they want, it's good jobs, you know, not just mm-hmm. good in the sense of cash, but also good as in the sense of fulfilling, useful, and often the way it works is we trade security, job, cash, for job love. And this is a sort of a, a, it's tackling a problem that we don't really have, but it is a problem that comes out of this tradition of thinking uh, that surplus can, you know, the improvement of technology over time and the efficiencies of of technology and even distribution of wealth of that production. It's a fascinating book and nobody reads it and nobody cares about it because it's, like this book, it, it's sort of the social end of science fiction is not real popular. Mm. As in the theories of socialism mm. in, in science fiction. Mac Reynolds and, uh, and uh, Jack London, that's about it, as far as I know. I mean, there are people who are sort of bent a little bit that way, but those are the only two guys who are actually, you know, card-carrying socialists. I think that might be part of it, but I also think that the storytelling technique... Oh, it's terrible. It, it separates you so much from the story that... Um, I don't know. 
I, I just it's, it was harder to get as into it or care as much about what was going on. And then there's the fact that it didn't really succeed. I don't know. I think hmm. those two things in combination for me would make it less successful. I, I kept thinking about the diary that that uh, Winston Smith keeps. Mm-hmm. You know, I I, I love the way he writes his diary. It's full of you know, it's just a page full of I hate Big Brother, I <laughs> hate Big Brother, and then you know he he is writing in it, but it's not about his diary. Whereas this is this is sort of a woman how much she she loves her boyfriend and well, and also about social yeah it, it is much more like twilight in that respect well and she's looking back right this always happens yeah. to me when i try to keep a journal i wait so long that i have to like summarize and try to remember what happened and it's not really the same as telling it in the moment yeah well maybe um you know the middle third of um 1984 is the quote goldstein book Mm-hmm. And it, it's almost as if this book begins with the Goldstein book, you know, because it begins with the ideas being hashed out. Yeah. Right. Remember Winston's reading to Julia and she falls asleep. <laughs> and it kind of happens to some readers, I guess. And then, and yeah. then the slap bang action. I mean, God, there's tons. I mean, there's the brainwashing of that one guy. There's the, the, the commune horrors. There's the, um, they have the bomb in Congress. Uh, Ernest gets elected to Congress, and and then mm-hmm. there's secret identities. I mean, and uh, Ace yeah. plays that game where she's she's so good at being somebody else, she you know fakes out her husband. You know. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like you want you want some of that in the beginning. And spy and counter spy, but but even so, when we get all that, we're so distanced from it. Is she saying this is what happened rather than Showing it's it. happening? It's not. Yeah, I'm, I have no problem with, you know, long uh, Heinleinian-style lectures. I like them. I, I think they're really interesting and, and fun, just like I, it's done in 1984 with, with the, you know, the way that's done is really well done. But the way this one works is it's all like that. And so even the action that is taking place mm-hmm. is not taking place on screen. It's taking place in the past um, and... The the distancing makes it much harder to make this a a fun, interesting read. It's more of like a technically surprising, and you know you you can admire the brilliance that is going on in Jack London's head. Mm-hmm. But it's not we're not anywhere close to being you know in uh, most uh, Heinlein sprinkles in some of the action right. Yeah, Starship yeah. Troopers is a series of lectures. Um, the classroom lecturers, but then they go out and blow shit up. Oh yeah, the opening chapter is a dive onto a planet. No, maybe you know, you're making me think again of God Emperor of Dune, uh, which I really respect as a book. I find fascinating, but nothing happens for ninety yeah. percent of it. I mean, it's the worm talking to people, and um, and I just find it because I'll listen to anything Frank Herbert ever said because the guy was you know a raving genius. Um, and he's just an amazing thinker to follow. But the, yeah. the book was a, I mean, it made a little bit of money, but it's clearly seen as a big step down in the series. I, I used to work at a bookstore, and that was always the killing run that people wouldn't read because it was seen as too slow. What is that number three? Four. Yeah, I, I, I stopped at number two, and I thought, oh. wow, some really good stuff in here, and there's tons of boring junk. And, you know, he, the fact that he's mining the same material... He spent so much time putting thought into the creation of the world that I think that 
it's like he got trapped in there. See, I'd, I'd, I'd love to talk about this, but not in this podcast. Um, <laughs> Maybe we'll do Dune one but, day. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to. Or, I mean, one thing that's important is that Dune and Dune Messiah were originally written as one book. And you know, the editors famously rejected it uh, again and again until he carved out Dune as a separate book. Um, and Published by Chilton, the, yeah. the manufacturer of car, ma- of car manuals, right? Yeah. Well, like Harry Potter is published by Scholastic, right? The, the, um, no, I, 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 think, I think you guys are right. I think the, the, um, the stall of conversation that begins the book and then the, um, the gloom of it... Um, you know, well, yeah, but 1984 is is basically, and you know, we we didn't even mention the boot crushing the human face forever. Right. That's that's the right. that's the connection that is so obvious. I yeah. mean, it's the Iron Heel. It's exactly. the right of the title. Exactly. But yeah, so like, but I think 1984 is incredibly depressing. It, it may be even much more depressing than this book, which, which objectively, I, just because you're so you're, close you're to the character. About, yeah, you're talking about the connection to the to the people. You know, you think about Winston Smith eating in the awful cafeteria, being in the two minute hate. I mean, he's standing in it, yep. and he doesn't know what's going on. I mean, he thinks he knows what's going to happen, and and he's wrong. I mean, he thinks he's going to be shot, and that never happens. I mean, that's the you know eventually it will, but not now. I mean, so it's always. It's kind of in the moment, um, and instead here, you know, all the suspense is leaked out. We've got some review I read said, "Yeah, the book begins with a spoiler." Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, these guys the entry, uh, yeah. you know, fails you. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm I have no problem with you know telling what's going to happen at the end, but I think that the 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 notes, you know, the fact that the reviewer, the people who are annotating the manuscript are so far removed from the event makes us even more, you know, it's always constantly reminding us that it's, it, it basically, it's somebody's, you know, the, um, well, not thesis. It's a, yeah, it's like their thesis basically. Well, it's a prepared text. It's a Norton critical edition. Yeah, exactly. It, it just sucking the juice out of the story. Yeah, I, 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 if you're if you're listening to the audiobook every once in a while, you know, it, oh, here's the footnote. All oh, right, yeah, that's from there. Right, okay. I was going to ask how they fit those in there because I read the print. Uh, they just show up. Okay, so just like if you were reading it, take a little break, yeah. read the footnote. <laughs> I was talking to a narrator. I was saying, you know, this is a book. There's only one version on Audible, and it's in Russian. Um, so I was saying this should be um, it's by Jack London. It should there should be an audiobook version that's you know commercial version out there. I was saying the way you do it is you have a female narrator, and then mm. have a, male, a male narrator come in and do the footnotes. Oh and, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. That interesting. And he thought that was a good idea. So I'm gonna hopefully we'll see a version like that because the one I uh, the one that I'm gonna put in the podcast um, is one I actually asked to be made years ago. I put out a request i said nobody's made a book out of this audiobook out of this and somebody did it and then you know three or four years later i say okay finally we're going to do a podcast about it but um i didn't realize that the whole book was supposedly written you know it's from a female's perspective so the male narrator is it starts off okay but because the first chapter is not really a chapter right it's uh introduction or forward mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. in a sort of a neutral voice it could be any gender but the, then the whole rest of the book is it's about a guy and the, his girlfriend but the girlfriend's the narrator and the narrator i mean it even saps the strength of it i mean it criticizes the text yeah mm-hmm. so the historian bristles with error 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. We smile. We forget of Evis Everhart for the heroic lines by which she modeled her husband. We know today mm. he was not so colossal. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does seem all the more like you know Jack Lennon saying, oh, "I'm not that awesome." I kind of, I kind of wish, <laughs> I kind of wish we had more of that in the footnotes. I mean, a lot of the footnotes are are actually pedantic. You know, they're yes, they're, they're, I, I think that it, it, it's. It's interesting because it is by a brilliant writer after he's written some brilliant books, right? This is not at the beginning of his career. This is right in his his golden time. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they should be pedantic, right? Because it's it's that's the function of this. It's a historical text, but um, but I can see why this would you know not have an appeal to people. Um, I mean, I also I mean a lot of the footnotes are actually footnotes that would discourage a lot of readers. You know, you don't need to have Grub translated as food. You don't need to know the the source that he's quoting from. You know, it's mm-hmm. not. Um, but I still think it's marvelous. I mean, I think yeah. I, I think it's it's. How it's, did you describe it when I I suggested you come on? You said it's crazy or wild or something like that. It is because it, it's. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing you know that London ever wrote that's that's sleepy. You know, there's no. It's not sleeping. Um, and it's it's always you know nothing happens slowly. I mean, it's it's funny. You know, the the communist Chicago scenes are, um, in a sense, too dramatic for World War One, at least in the Western Front. There's too mm. much motion. Uh, you know, what we know is you know seven years later we're going to have the hell of trench warfare and and attrition. But what he's describing something almost more like World War II city battles. You know, he, he doesn't mention yeah, tanks. Yeah, skyscraper to skyscraper, right? I love that. It's like something from Metropolis. And then he talks about like war automobiles. Like, whoa, armored cars? Or is he getting yeah. at tanks? You know, like, like H.G. Wells did. Um, it's it's crazy. It's fast. I mean, that's and then that last page. Whoa! They just stops the middle of the sentence. Not just the middle of the sentence, but also all that stuff happening and what's happening is a prelude because it's all supposed to the real action is supposed to happen next after the book yeah. takes place. I mean, the Chicago Commune was a was a, a trick. It was a a feint by the not a feint um, a ruse by the oligarchy. Instead, mm-hmm. you know, the real revolution is supposed to happen next. And wow, I mean, just to have the the guts to end the book right at that knife edge. That's yeah, that's really. You're making it sound a lot more exciting than it actually reads, though. <laughs> well, it, it, it's there. It's there to be, you know, to be extracted. But that's not the novel I was reading. Might, the novel I was reading is it's it's much more distant. It's like long time ago there was a battle, and there was this was happening, this was happening, this was happening, and for her it was very dramatic, right? You know, all right, I'll give you an example. Um, Mary Shelley has an amazing novel called Last Man. I don't know if oh, it was, I want. It's it's a, the first half is a slog, just just to warn you. Um, but it's totally worth it. Um, Jenny, have you have you read this at all? No, not yet. Oh, it's good. It's really good. It's to. well, it's one of her last books, and it's and it's like, I mean, Frankenstein was written by a teenager, and it shows in a lot of ways. Brilliant, I mean, amazing. But but Last Man is much more careful and deliberate. It's about a plague that wipes out the human race, mm-hmm. um, and it's a science fiction work. It takes place a thousand years in the future from from the eighteen thirties, and um, but one of the things you get is you get this front matter which says, oh yeah, you know this was a this is a document found by the uh, author um, and, and her husband as they were going through this cave, and they found all this written on leaves like it was some mm. hidden mysterious text, 
and uh, it, it describes a terrifying future. How did we find this? Is this a prophetic yeah. book? And so I thought, oh, that's that's pretty cool. That's a neat yeah. little thing to set up. And and what happens is is unbelievably melancholic. I mean, it's um, uh, the plague is described in, in exquisite detail. And the first half, which is kind of a slog, some critics see is basically Mary Shelley's. She's she's has all of her friends of her life, and she puts them up in roles, and then she kills them one by mm-hmm. one. Um, oh, if you get a chance, I I I recommend that it. Good. It's um no one read this until the eighties, hmm. and then wow. and then when AIDS came out, there was this big. I mean, when AIDS hit as a horrible plague, it it resurrected interest in plague novels and plague works. Like William Defoe has a journal, The Plague Year, which I really recommend. It's really awesome. There's Jack London's The Scarlet Plague. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Oh, that's, that's a sad that's, book. That's a much better book. Yeah. Than this, it's in also, drama. But it's also so depressing. God. Um, you know. <laughs> I yeah. love depressing. Oh, it, you'll love this. If you haven't read it, it's it's very good. Did you ever see, very... you ever see the movie Idiocracy? Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like Idiocracy in in a way. It's like well, the far future really sucks, and people are really stupid. And mm-hmm. and here's a narrator from the you know who remembers the past. He's going to tell you about it. And oh, uh, yeah. Well, that that that's actually the Marching Morons. That's a remake or uh, like, a, a non credited yeah um, adaptation of the Marching Morons, which is mm-hmm. a. It's also a terrible story. It's really badly written, but mm-hmm. fascinating and interesting in in many ways. And it's public domain. You know, when when Lenin was dying on his deathbed, um, he asked his wife Kripskaya to read him a Jack London story. Huh. And this is this is beloved by by Jack London fans everywhere. It's just like weirdly, you know, wow, what a you know great guy of world literature. I think in part it's just because his stuff just crackles. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if other dystopias I've read can be somber and and slow, he he is he's built in he he is a built-in science fiction brain because mm-hmm. if, uh, there's a story uh, everybody knows it it's one of the ones they make you read in school but I argue that it is a it's the first version of the cold equations oh. it's it's uh, it's the one everybody knows it's the the uh, one about a guy who's up in the uh, it's called to build a fire it's about a yes. guy who's up in the Yukon yes. and he gets he's uh, he doesn't listen to somebody's advice who's been up there before and it just gets too cold for him and he freezes to death well and he does he, stupid he, stuff and that's what he, he does he continuously makes well he makes one big error which is he <laughs> it's too cold it's too cold to, to live and and he he, you know, th- what's interesting there is it has the dog element too. Mm-hmm. The dog is in there, and the dog thinks the man has a wisdom. That this is always what L- London's doing with his. When he looks into the dog's eyes, he sees how dogs' minds work. Right? They laugh. They right. they 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 admire us, and they also know when we're fooling ourselves. Oh, that's, that's and, so sad. But the end of the story is the dog is waits, and the dog leaves. Right, and the dog says, "Well, yeah, a, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, and he's, he built a fire he under like a tree the, filled with snow." You know, that's right. But and there, you know, there's a there's a science fiction element to it explicitly, which I always like, which is when um, fire strikes back. Is that what you're thinking of? No, no, it, it's just I think where where I live, I, I mean, I live in the mountains, and it gets pretty cold here in winter. I mean, you know, minus twenty, minus thirty Fahrenheit. That's that's chilly. Um, mm. And I think of this passage when he gets. Um, um, he takes his fingers off 
I'm sorry, he takes his mittens off and, his, and his, his skin is exposed, which is a mistake. He says, the cold of space smote the unprotected tip of the planet, and he, being on the unprotected tip, received the full force of the blow. I, I love that. I mean, but it feels, yeah, it's cosmic. It's realistic. It's realistic, but it also does feel cosmic. It feels like something Lovecraftian or something, yeah. you know, um, from another planet. Um, no, it's he, it's an awesome. He story. does understand man's tiny space in the in the universe. You know that that that's the thing they found out in the 19th century. We we aren't living in the center of the universe, and right. it's a small right. universe. We're living in an uh, unimportant part of the universe, and it's incredibly old and incredibly giant and like if you dust. if you think of, start thinking about that that is what makes uh science fiction e stuff out of what it, it, there's absolutely no science fiction elements other than the mindset of the writer when he wrote that story it's and you know th- that's the solution that uh Lee Brackett came up with for the cold equations, when Han is on mm-hmm. on Hoth, right? He says, <laughs> "Okay, let's freeze him to death. Okay, open up this. Animal. I was going to say Jawa, but whatever. What uh, Tauntaun, right? Uh, he shoves uh, Luke inside the Tauntaun. Um, that's what the guy wanted to do with the dog, right? right. In in uh, to build a fire, he wanted to cut that dog open and and crawl inside. And the dog's like, "I'm out of here." What? Well, you know, I, I think. I think there is a science fiction flair to Iron Heel. It really, you know, it really does um, make things work. I guess it, it reminds me of some of like the like the Robert Sheckley stories, where he comes up with a wild invention, and the invention doesn't necessarily make sense, but the whole idea is to just poke at society and see how it how it unfurls in the face mm-hmm. of it. Uh, yep. And you know, you get these great racing paragraphs in the second half where. You know, this thing happens, and then this thing happens, and then this happens, and this happens in France, and then and then Canada is brought under the Iron Heel, so you guys don't get to escape. I should also point out, I found a Vincent Price uh, version of uh, 1984 radio Sweet. drama. Oh, cool! Sweet. It's in Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah. In 1955. Oh, that's perfect. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's Winston Smith, and the interesting difference between this script and other ones is, uh, although the Brit, the BBC one is even better, it's two hour version. This is an hour long version, but uh, the narrator is an offshoot personality of of Winston Smith, so he sort of talks to himself, and it's a different actor. Oh, uh, uh, that's interesting. Though. That sounds very interesting. Speaking of science fiction, I'm actually I have to. Uh, end my participation in this call right now because it is my son's birthday and we have to go and do things that involve telescopes and museums. Cool. Um, what a fun day. Is, <laughs> it is. It is. In fact, we, he has a book that he's very excited to read, a work of Russian science fiction called Metro 2033. Oh. Actually, yeah. I haven't read it. That's that game too, isn't it? Yep. A series of games. So I'm going to hmm. sit down with him and read this. So I have to go. Um... Thank you all for this great conversation. You've really opened my eyes to the book. Thank you for participating. My pleasure. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.